This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of men. You are the Renaissance. Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to Poetry for Men, part of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Over the past three episodes, we've covered poets of the English Reformation and Restoration era, George Herbert, Andrew Marvell, and John Donne. This era spans a century from roughly 1550 to 1650, and as anyone even vaguely familiar with English literature knows, there is another name lurking behind and towering above the writers of this age, and indeed all others, William Shakespeare. Shakespeare is not primarily known for his poetry. He published 154 sonnets, of which most people recognize one or two, and also three long narrative poems that I bet you can't name, but he's primarily known for his 39 plays. At the same time, I couldn't discuss this period of English poetry without at least mentioning him. I considered reading a sonnet, but felt that one might be too short, two would somehow be missing something, and three perhaps too much. I also considered reading one of the narrative poems, but the feeling was like seeing your favorite band in concert and only hearing them play B-sides. At some point, you want to hear the hits. So what to do? I opened my copy of The Best Poems of the English Language by Harold Bloom, The Gift from My Dad, and found my answer. While not strictly a poem, it is very much poetic. And rather than merely being one of Shakespeare's greatest hits, it's one of the greatest hits of the entire English language. And yet, while we all know its opening six words and hear them several times a year, few of us know what they actually mean. I can also say personally that I was fortunate to receive one of the finest educations in America. Thanks, Dad but I never once was assigned to read these words, and I was a bit ashamed of that fact once I realized it. Because how can any of us consider ourselves educated if we don't know what might be the most famous reference in our language? This is also my 10th episode of Poetry for Men, believe it or not, and given that this piece of literature has much to teach us about being a man, as we'll see, the answer became clear. That there's a time to follow rules and a time to break them for greater purpose. A skeptic might also ask, Who are you to be interpreting Shakespeare? Scholars have debated his works for centuries. What could you possibly add to the dialogue? Well, I'm no one. But to be honest, I could care less about contributing to any scholarly dialogue, especially considering how academics today seem more interested in deconstructing Shakespeare's words, if I'm being polite, rather than venerating them. Meanwhile, I'm fortunate to know a few hundred men hungry to learn more about what poetry has to teach us about masculinity and how it might enrich our understanding of ourselves and our lives so we can become better men. So while scholars can debate theory, we few, we happy few over here will discuss practice. Feel free to choose whichever side appeals. I'm also going to take a different angle and not talk so much about Shakespeare's personal life history, because I'm not convinced that everything we know about him is accurate, especially because we know so little about him in the first place. Let's start with what we know. He was born in the English town of Stratford-upon-Avon, in the province of Warwickshire, just south of Birmingham in 1564. 
At age 18, he married a woman named Anne Hathaway, who was apparently eight years his senior and with whom he had three children, a girl named Susanna and later a pair of twins, a boy and a girl named Hamnet and Judith, though Hamnet tragically died of unknown causes at age 11. Sometime in the late 1500s, William Shakespeare appeared on the London theater scene as an actor, writer, and part owner of a theater group called Lord Chamberlain's Men and later the King's Men. At age 49 in 1613, he appears to have retired to Stratford, where he died three years later. And that's about it. No, really. That's as much as historians are prepared to say for sure. They don't even know his actual birth date. Digging further into Shakespeare's life yields a number of very strange facts. For example, did you know that there's a seven-year gap of knowledge with regard to the whereabouts of the most famous and influential English writer of all time? This is true. Scholars refer to the years between 1585 and 1592 as his, quote, lost years. And this wouldn't be a big deal, except those are also the seven years leading up to the first performances of his first plays. Where did he go? No one knows. He left no diary and no letters to family or friends in which he shared insights into the events of his personal life or his thoughts and feelings about them. He also had what sounds like the equivalent of a public school education today. While there are no actual records of this, it's assumed that he attended the King Edward VI school in Stratford from ages 7 to 14. Here he would have received a basic education in the alphabet and grammar. Surely he didn't spontaneously discover his transcendent genius. Would not a child of such profound gifts be noticed? Nope, apparently not. And if we assume he discovered his genius later, how? His father, John Shakespeare, was a glove maker, alderman, county ale taster, and even identified in court documents as an unlicensed and therefore illegal wool dealer. Not exactly the sort of pedigree that typically led to literary genius in an era of intense class stratification and undereducation. Read Shakespeare's Wikipedia bio. You'll see similar inconsistencies, mysteries, and unanswered questions all throughout his life, which makes even less sense when you consider that the biographical information of comparatively less well-known writers like George Herbert and Andrew Marvell is far more robust. The man is a ghost, especially compared to his place in history. In the show notes, I'll also link you to some researchers conducting literally mind-boggling investigations into many of the serious weirdnesses that surround Shakespeare and his writings. For example, the first page of the publication of his sonnets in 1609 has encoded in it several fundamental mathematical constants, some of which wouldn't be discovered for more than 300 years. Don't believe me? I've linked a video in the show notes and you can watch it and decide how strongly you believe in coincidence or if the world is far weirder than we can comprehend. But since this is a podcast about beauty and not weirdness, I'm not going to litigate any of the case of Shakespeare's personal life history and focus instead on what we do know, the content and context of his plays, which it turns out there's quite a lot of. And perhaps not coincidentally, this also gives me a chance to remedy a gap in my own education and perhaps yours as well as we examine one of the most famous, oft-quoted, and least widely understood bits of writing in the English language, Hamlet's soliloquy. Hamlet is probably Shakespeare's most famous work, which was also the case during his lifetime. It's also his longest play, clocking in at more than 30,000 words and more than 4,000 lines. And while most theaters are unfortunately closed nowadays, you can watch an unabridged film adaptation online starring Kenneth Branagh. Just be sure to set aside four hours. To give just the barest summary of the plot, the king of Denmark has died suddenly, and his wife Gertrude has married the king's brother, Claudius. 
With just one sentence, I'm sure you can already hear trouble. Hamlet is the prince of Denmark, and naturally he's disturbed by his father's death and his mother quickly marrying his uncle. Then one night, the deceased king appears to his son in a vision, claiming to have been murdered by his brother and demanding that Hamlet avenge his death. To confirm Claudius's guilt, Hamlet stages a play to mimic the murder and watches his uncle for a reaction, which is ultimately of a guilty man. Hamlet now feels free to act and sets out to kill Claudius. Things don't go as planned, however. First, Hamlet misses an opportunity to kill Claudius while Claudius is praying. Hamlet fears that if he kills him then, Claudius will go to heaven. Then Hamlet accidentally murders the king's counselor, Polonius, who's the father of Ophelia, Hamlet's paramour, and Laertes, her brother. Hamlet is then sent away to be betrayed by friends as part of a deadly plot. Ophelia drowns herself, grieving over the loss of her father and Hamlet. Hamlet escapes, however, and returns to find an enraged Laertes, who challenges him to a duel. Laertes laces his sword with poison. Claudius also conspires with Laertes and poisons a glass of wine, figuring they'll get Hamlet one way or another. In the conclusion of the play, Queen Gertrude unknowingly drinks the poisoned wine, and as she dies, she accuses Claudius of the murder. Laertes and Hamlet then duel, and both are wounded with the poisoned blade. Laertes dies. Hamlet then finally kills Claudius, stabbing him with the poison blade and making him drink the poison wine, thus completing his revenge before Hamlet himself dies as well. At the end of the play, the major players, Hamlet, Gertrude, Claudius, Polonius, Ophelia, and Laertes, have all died directly or indirectly as a result of Hamlet's actions. Hamlet is also responsible for the offstage deaths of two minor characters. Only Hamlet's best friend Horatio lives to tell the tale. Murder, intrigue, betrayal, revenge, suicide, insanity, the supernatural, and a pile of eight bodies. As the saying goes, something is rotten in the state of Denmark, and perhaps now you understand how true those words are. Of course, I've left out several famous characters and scenes, such as those with the Gravediggers, Fortinbras, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and the murder of Gonzago. So I hope you won't consider this summary authoritative or complete. And of course, nothing compares to hearing Shakespeare's words for yourself. Perhaps you can also understand the historical fascination with the play as well. Where might such an original and vivid work come from? Turns out that's just as much of a mystery as the man who wrote it. There were many similar legends that could have influenced the play. One is the Scandinavian saga of Rolf Kraki, which feature the sons of a murdered king taking revenge. Another is the life of Amleth, which features, among other similarities, the mother of a prince hastily marrying a usurper. Another work rumored to exist is called the Ur-Hamlet, which may have been written either by Shakespeare or one of his contemporaries, a man named Thomas Kidd. No copies of the play exist today, but a writer at the time named Thomas Lodge wrote in one of his journals that he recalled seeing such a play long before Shakespeare's final Hamlet was produced. Okay, so we don't know much about either the writer or the history of the most famous play in English of all time. Fine, makes perfect sense. Let's get a little weirder then. When was it written? Turns out scholars don't know that for sure either. An English literary critic didn't mention it during a survey of 12 of Shakespeare's plays in 1598, but a printed pamphlet dated 1602 mentions it by name. So just a four-year window, no big deal. And now let's get even weirder. There's no one version of Hamlet either. There are three editions of it, from two different publishers. The first known publishing, called the First Quarto, was published in 1603. 
The second quarto was published in 1604 and was about two times longer. Finally, the first folio was published almost two decades later in 1623. It was a complete collection of Shakespeare's works produced by two of his colleagues, including Ben Jonson, his friend and rival. The first folio added 77 lines to Hamlet, not appearing in either of the quartos. Oh, and there's one more problem. Shakespeare died in 1616 at the age of 52, seven years before the publication of the first folio. So there's no authoritative edition of the play as signed by the author himself. Anything you'd read is merely an assembly that scholars have derived based on the three existing sources, and there are significant structural differences between all three of the works. So, just to recap, we know little about the life, mind, and character of the author of the most famous and popular play in Western literature, and we also don't know where the play came from, what inspired it, when it was published, or what the authoritative version of it is. So now that you know less than you did before starting this podcast, let's move on to the play. There's a great quote I found from Isaac Asimov's Guide to Shakespeare. Quote, There is the story of the woman who read Hamlet for the first time and said, I don't see why people admire the play so. It is nothing but a bunch of quotations strung together. And here are a few of those quotations. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him, Horatio. This above all to thine own self be true. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. There is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Brevity is the soul of wit. What a piece of work is man. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. And good night, sweet prince. All this demonstrates what a huge part of our language this play is. Of course, such a massively popular work has been dissected and discussed through the lenses of each age as it passes through them. Religious interpretations, philosophical interpretations, psychological interpretations in the works of Freud, postmodernist interpretations, feminist interpretations, and based on recent headlines, it seems like the Social Justice Brigade has taken aim at it as well. Hamlet is also the role of a lifetime for many actors, each of whom has attempted to make a name for himself, offering a unique interpretation of the title character. It made Sir John Gielgud, Sir Lawrence Olivier, Sir Richard Burton, and Peter O'Toole famous. Lately, actors such as Ray Fiennes, David Tennant, Tom Hiddleston, Oscar Isaac, Michael Sheen, and even Paul Giamatti have given it a go. And of course, the on-screen role has been played by Kenneth Branagh, as I mentioned, as well as Ethan Hawke, and believe it or not, Mel Gibson during his Lethal Weapon and Mad Max years. Look it up. And the play itself has been an inspiration to names like Goethe, John Milton, Charles Dickens, Nietzsche, James Joyce, Kurt Vonnegut, T.S. Eliot, Anton Chekhov, Charlie Chaplin, Malcolm X, Robin Williams, David Foster Wallace, and even Arnold Schwarzenegger and Star Trek. All this demonstrates just what a powerful pillar of Western culture Hamlet is. And there's no more famous portion of the play than this. Hamlet has five acts, and this speech takes place during Act 3, Scene 1, as the Prince of Denmark is walking alone in a hall shortly before a decisive confrontation with Ophelia. After this scene follows the performance of the play within a play that will demonstrate Claudius's guilt and spur Hamlet on to action. This is the singular and signature passage of the entire work and what might be called the center point of the center point of English literature and some of the most famous words in our language. Wherever it came from, whoever the man was who wrote it, it is an indelible part of us. I am no actor. I don't pretend to be worthy to share the stage with some of history's greats. 
But as a proud member of Western culture, I seek to understand myself just like I seek to understand myself as a man, as a human being, and as an individual, which means I must understand this work as well. So it's with great humility and no small amount of joy that I present the 10th episode of Poetry for Men featuring the finest work of Shakespeare, Hamlet's Soliloquy. To be or not to be. That is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietest make with a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprise of great pitch and moment, with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. It's difficult for us to appreciate the genius of Hamlet and this soliloquy because so much contained within it became part of everything in Western literature that would follow. Just like the painter Brunelleschi's experiments with perspective 200 years earlier changed Western painting forever. Something shifted here, and now we live in a literary environment whose character is, in some sense, defined by Shakespeare's words as Plato defined our philosophy and as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ defined our religion thousands of years ago. Not coincidentally, all three of them had something essential to say about humanity and individuality as well. As I said in the introduction, each age interprets Hamlet and the speech through its own unique lens. I'm going to do the same. As you know if you listen to this podcast, the poems I select are intended to instruct us as men about our lives and how to be better, stronger, and more capable living them. I say that because a singular work like this lends itself to countless interpretations, and it should. So I'm not intending to say what this work means beyond saying what I take from it. That is as it should be for all great works of art and beauty, that they speak in a transcendent language that must be translated by the individual, I believe in a way that best serves their highest growth and expansion. Learning to engage with this process is one of the true joys of appreciating art and is why I encourage every man of every age, occupation, income, and level of education to seek out the art that speaks to him and to savor the fruits of that process for himself. And, as you may now be able to detect, this is one of the deepest values that informs the renaissance of men. So, with that in mind, let's begin. In the context of the play, Hamlet is about to initiate a sequence of events whose consequences he cannot predict. He has architected the play within a play that will confirm or deny his uncle's guilt for killing his father. 
a phrase that comes to mind is, ignorance is bliss. Surely we all have experiences in our lives where we'd rather not know the answer. Do we really want to step on the scale, take the shirtless pick, check our partner's DMs, open the email from our boss, or ask the hard questions at the dinner table? Or would we rather remain in ignorance because it spares us the responsibility for action? That is the place that Hamlet is in as he approaches what might be the pivotal moment of his life. According to some of the finest scholars of English literature, including Harold Bloom, this is what makes Hamlet such a legendary character. He's imbued with the same complex struggle with doubt that we all share as humans in a way that no character before him ever had. The word that often gets used is interiority, which is the sense that you have an inner world beyond my reach, just like I have one beyond yours. If you've ever wanted to climb inside the mind of your beloved and see the world through their eyes, if only for a moment, you're seeking to experience their interiority. One of the most frustrating aspects of being human is the realization that none of us can ever experience the interiority of another, except perhaps in a limited way, through their creativity. Literary scholars disagree about almost everything, but they seem to be unanimous in saying that unlike any character that came before him or perhaps since, Hamlet has a sense of a truly human-like interiority that generates his conflicted thoughts, words, and actions, but that will always be beyond our reach. In this way, it's said that in Hamlet, Shakespeare crafted a true individual for the first time, as real as an actual person, and breathed life into him on the page. Or, in the words of Harold Bloom, quote, To have thought his way into Hamlet and Falstaff's inwardness is Shakespeare's most startling originality. We now take it for granted after four centuries of being post-Shakespearean, but who in play, novel, poem can do what Shakespeare did in creating so much human otherness? Now we'll see how all this plays out in the text. Since we're reading Shakespeare, you'll notice that the passage is written in the iambic pentameter that he's famous for. It's pure Shakespearean English and has an elevated quality, which is part of the reason why these words can feel so out of reach. Also, there's the issue of vocabulary. I'm no philologist or student of languages, but I think it's fascinating that there are four words in the speech that have passed out of usage entirely, but we'll get to those in time. So let's begin with the opening line, the famous to be or not to be. That is the question. And there's the conflict right away. This line can be interpreted two ways. My ears used to hear to be or not to be and thought it had something to do with the future. Will this version of the future come to pass or not? Will it be or not be? But there's another way of reading this passage, which hints that Hamlet is contemplating the morality of suicide. To be or not to be, as in, should I exist or not exist? Should I go on being or not go on being? And I think that in the context of the play, it's possible to read it either way and both. So in this opening line, Hamlet encapsulates the main themes of his soliloquy. He's talking about the actions he'll take and their potential consequences, and also the moral issue of ending one's life to avoid suffering. That Shakespeare can express all this in just six one-syllable words, beggars the mind. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them. Hamlet is asking about the appropriate way to live. Do we simply sit back and take life lying down, suffering its injustices and enduring its frustrating circumstances? Or do we take up arms against our sea of troubles in the hopes of defeating them? Which of those decisions seems nobler to us? I think all of us would say that some circumstances we endure 
while others we fight. Today we might phrase this as knowing which hill you're willing to die on. The hill you're willing to die on is the sea of troubles you're willing to take up arms against. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. It's unusual to find a hero in world literature who seems to want to die. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished? What kind of hero wishes to avoid his suffering? Contrast this with heroes up until this point. Take Achilles, for example, or go even further back to the earliest known character in literature, Gilgamesh. These men turned towards their destinies in a confident, conquering spirit. Achilles towards the city of Troy and Gilgamesh towards the monster Humbaba and became legendary as a result. But Hamlet? He seems to want to avoid his fate instead, at least partially. Before you write him off as a weak man, understand something. In your life, are you more like Achilles or Hamlet? Do you go charging bravely into every battle with a warrior spirit of conquest and immortality? Or do you doubt, hesitate, and fear? Surely some of you thematic men will say the former, as would I. But have you always been that way? And are you always that way in every situation? Be honest, you're not. And neither am I. This is why heroes like Achilles are archetypal. They're not real humans. They are the embodiment of timeless themes that we're meant to aspire to. Hamlet, on the other hand, is a real man, or as close as had ever existed on the page up until that point. Every hesitating character after him is, in some sense, an imitation. Hamlet doubts. He fears. In fact, he fears the future so much, he almost wishes he was dead. I've felt that existential dread before, and I think even the strongest men have as well. And that's okay. That is part of being human, something no author up until this moment had ever articulated so vividly. And Hamlet is even philosophizing about that fear too, as many of us do. He sees himself. It's incredible. It seems common now to have a wavering, conflicted, self-aware character who spends more time thinking about his own experience than anyone else's. But once upon a time, it wasn't. There's a first time for everything. To die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Aye, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. And this is Hamlet's argument against choosing death over life, because we don't know what happens after we die. If we sleep and dream, which is to say die and go into the afterlife, we don't know what, if anything, will be waiting for us there. It's often said that what sets humans apart from animals is our awareness of our mortality, and many Buddhist teachers claim that knowledge of our impending death is the ultimate root of the subtle uneasiness we feel at times throughout our lives. It's not that there is a forgotten task left undone, or some nebulous emergency waiting to spring upon us in the future. These are just masks for the essential fear of death that lives within each of our hearts. For this reason, death is our constant companion, and our knowledge of this fact makes living a long life uniquely difficult. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietus make with a bare bodkin? Here we encounter some unfamiliar vocabulary. A quietus is just a word for death, although I've also seen it defined as the end of an argument. So Hamlet is both talking about suicide 
and the ending of some inner debate once and for all. And as you might imagine, by bare bodkin, Hamlet means a dagger or some other sharp instrument. Contumely means abusive speech or scorn. Imagine being talked down to by an obnoxiously proud man. You work hard to be a good person and some jerk tells you off. That's contumely. These are the sufferings of life that Hamlet is articulating. I'm sure we can relate to all of them, each in our own ways. Here are some more. The whips and scorns of time. The oppressor's wrong. The pangs of despised love, which is essentially rejection. The law's delay or injustice. The insolence of office or corruption. And the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes. Or the insults that a hardworking and patient person receives from someone undeserving. Why should a man go through all this stuff when he can just kill himself, Hamlet is asking. Yes, it's dramatic and theatrical, no pun intended. But Hamlet is a dramatic and theatrical character, more prone to overthinking than action. And I think that's a fair critique of him, one he even levels at himself, because as philosophical as he is, again, he is self-aware of his own nature. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? Fardel is not a word I think any of us miss, but it means a burden, specifically one carried by a camel. And if you've ever seen how much a camel can carry, it's a lot. Following that, Hamlet continues on about the fear of death and how that fear keeps us trapped within our lives, which are weighed down with unjust suffering. The key phrase is puzzles the will, not thwarts the will, but puzzles it or confuses it. As in, what do I really want? This theme of doubt is repeated throughout the speech. Hamlet says, whether tis nobler in the mind, must give us pause, making a calamity of long life. Hamlet is articulating the pain of choice, which is an existential burden. At the risk of sounding redundant, an existential burden is a burden that comes along with existence. In other words, it's part of the deal, written in fine print on the back of our ticket to earth. And Hamlet is saying that this existential burden, this pain of choosing, is so intense, sometimes a man might be justified in wishing for oblivion. But standing in the way of that wish is our fear of death, the undiscovered country, and its impenetrable veil. Unlike Homer's Odysseus, who ventures into Hades where dwell the souls of the dead, Hamlet finds no such solace and certainty of the nature of the afterlife. Facing that blackness of eternal sleep, Hamlet says we'd rather bear the suffering that we know, rejection, injustice, oppression, corruption, scorn, rather than risk encountering suffering we can't predict. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought, an enterprise of great pitch and moment, with this regard their currents turn awry, and lose the name of action. Bear with me, because we're going deep into philosophy we're about to touch bottom. So on one hand, we feel the existential burden of the pain of choice because we can't always predict the outcome of our actions. Then, on the other hand, we have our fear of death. These two aspects of being then color our experience of life. Our inherent human bravery or native hue of resolution is weakened by thought about both death and our uncertain future, which eternally drives us back from the cusp of decisive action. In other words, we imagine great deeds in our heart, and then the gift of our own mind, 
undercuts our ability to manifest those deeds in life. Is this not every single day in ways great and small? Shakespeare doesn't follow this up by having Hamlet say, but this is what we must do in response, like a normal hero might do. Instead, Hamlet simply states it and leaves that observation to be contemplated after he's interrupted in the hall. Shakespeare, through Hamlet, is talking about the fundamental problem of consciousness, of our awareness of death and the mystery of the future and how they create fear. This is what it means to have a mind, to be conscious, to be human. These are the core questions of philosophy, psychology, and religion all in one. But it's also more than that. It's not a text or a tome. In fact, when it was written, not everyone could read. It was meant to be performed on stage for the public. In other words, it's entertainment. And given that it's been in continuous performance for 420 years, it's damn good entertainment. But it's even more than that. It's not just philosophy, psychology, religion, and entertainment. It's poetry. Take a moment to appreciate the aesthetics of this piece, not just in the mastery of iambic pentameter that made Shakespeare's style so famous, but also the language. Shakespeare doesn't simply say injustice, but he captures its essence, which is the law's delay. Appreciate the brutal peasant vividness of the phrase to grunt and sweat under a weary life. Feel the expansiveness of the term outrageous fortune. Note his description of death as the undiscovered country a mere hundred years after Christopher Columbus. And then structurally, I think you can feel in the lines themselves the way the hurricane-force winds of Hamlet's existential doubt exhaust themselves as the force of his speech builds and then dissipates, concluding in the final ambiguous lines, with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. This brings Hamlet full circle, back to the same doubt with which he began. Thus, if you knew nothing about the context of Shakespeare's words, who delivered them, why and where, they'd stand alone in their aesthetic beauty simply for what they are. The rhythm, meter, metaphor, and imagery crystallize around Shakespeare's ideas. And atop them all are six simple words that encapsulate everything that follows. Will something come to pass or not? Do I go on existing or not? To be or not to be. To see this for the first time in my life was like staring into the sun, which is appropriate because when I stopped to consider what might be equally renowned words in English, the first that came to mind were, let there be light, but those were originally written in Hebrew. I hope I've made clear the historical, cultural, and literary significance of these words, this play, and William Shakespeare. But what are we to do with all this in our lives? Shakespeare doesn't offer us a good answer. Following this speech, Claudius's guilt is revealed, and eight people die, including Hamlet himself. Hamlet is right to dread the future. He fears death while his death is coming. Shakespeare, as the author, of course knows this. Does he give Hamlet a sense of it as well? Does Shakespeare give his creation, Hamlet, a fear of death, as God has given us ours? Is Shakespeare playing God? Pulling back from speculation, this play has anything but a happy ending. It has a complete and balanced ending, meaning that at the conclusion, there is the sense that everyone has gotten what is coming to them, including Hamlet, and perhaps the rot has passed out of Denmark. But the carnage is anything but happy. 
Does this mean that Hamlet shouldn't have acted? Claudius murdered Hamlet's father, the king. The king's widow, Gertrude, Hamlet's mother, then married her husband's brother. What sort of man would Hamlet be if he hadn't acted? He even went to the trouble of staging a play to draw out his uncle's guilt. That seems like a pretty responsible thing to do, rather than embarking on a murderous rampage from the start just because some ghost told him to. One could argue that Hamlet should have acted right away, killing Claudius as soon as he knows of his guilt. Well, that actually almost happens, but Hamlet holds back and accidentally kills Polonius instead, and he has good reasons for doing both. Thus, you can see, it's a mess. But isn't that life? Aren't we all as men faced with uncertainty and doubt and forced to navigate it? Don't we all, like Hamlet, lament even quietly the burdens of existence, of consciousness and awareness? Don't we sometimes wish someone would make the hard decisions for us? In the famous book The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, the hero Santiago is given a pair of stones by his mentor Melchizedek. The stones are called Urim and Thummim. One is black and the other white. The idea behind them is that if you can't make a decision about what to do, you assign a choice to each of the stones and draw one out of the bag. The stone you choose is what you do. It's a bit like flipping a coin, but more tactile. And as it turns out, this is a biblical reference from the book of Exodus chapter 28. I tried this once, just like I've tried flipping coins. But ultimately, every time before I do, I realize that no, I don't truly want someone else to make decisions for me, least of all a bag of rocks. I'd like to think I'm at least as smart as they are. Maybe in that we can find an answer then, that our responsibility as men is to act. We must shoulder the burden of consciousness and yes, examine it, but not let our examinations get in the way of decisive action, engaging with life as it is, not how we wish it would be. We must decide, not just to be or not to be, but to do or not to do. Or, in the words of Longfellow's Psalm of Life, one of my first poetry episodes, Trust no future, however pleasant. Let the dead past bury its dead. Act, act in the living present, heart within and God o'erhead. Yet even then, I hear Longfellow and Shakespeare agreeing, Trust no future, however pleasant. The future remains a mystery. And so then here we are, isolated in contemplation with Hamlet once again because this is also what it means to be a man. As Plato recounts Socrates saying before his death in the Apology, an unexamined life is not worth living. Do you see now the argument? Do you see now what it means to be a man and to be human? Being and doing, thinking and action, heart and mind, life and death, past, present, and future. This is the eternal argument that comes with the gift of consciousness, encapsulated again in to be or not to be. So every time you hear those words, I hope you remember now what a gift they are, that they're not a joke, that they're the very fabric of what it means to be alive and to be human. And as the nihilistic masses close in with their accusations of Western culture, you now know the fundamental problems of consciousness that a rural Englishman with a public school education was grappling with. Our most famous reference in our language, by our most famous writer, in our most famous play, uttered by our most famous character, is a radiant mirror for us to look into and understand ourselves as beings. I am deeply indebted to the work, wit, and wisdom of the late Harold Bloom as I learned to navigate these waters which were far deeper than I imagined. 
He was a charming and endearing man and a true educator who effortlessly brought literature to life. And in the show notes, I've included a link to an interview of him by Charlie Rose about this play so you can see what I mean. There's much more to discuss about Hamlet and his motivations. Is he acting or insane? A coward or a butcher? And before I finish this episode, I want to leave you with a question of my own. Did Hamlet subconsciously succeed in manifesting his own wishes? The outcome that he desired, the death of Claudius, was to be, but Hamlet himself was not to be. Did Hamlet not get exactly what he wanted in the end? I suspect that several episodes wouldn't be enough to plumb the depths of Hamlet's interiority to satisfaction, because several centuries haven't been either. But I hope that these 40 or so minutes will be enough to whet your appetite for more of the extraordinary artist Shakespeare, his enigma that is Hamlet, and for those substances we all crave, goodness, truth, and beauty. And perhaps now I understand why I wasn't assigned this play in high school. Thank you so much for continuing with me on this journey. This episode has been a monumental effort for me, and if you've listened this far, I'm very grateful. And thanks to my dad for facilitating yet another part of my education. I couldn't have done it without him. We're 10 episodes in, with the world ahead. Once again, this is Hamlet's soliloquy by the man Ralph Waldo Emerson called Master of the Revels to Mankind, William Shakespeare. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them, to die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep perchance to dream. Ay, there's the rub. For in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time? the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office, and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes when he himself might his quietest make with a bare bodkin. Who would fardels bear to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of? Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sicklied o'er with the pale cast of thought and enterprise of great pitch and moment, with this regard their currents turn awry and lose the name of action.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.